This week, Windstream Unity pushed forward on restructuring, Malincrat kicks off credit agreement amendment, term loan raise, Foresight files for Chapter 11. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Stick around to hear Mark Fisher and Sean Daly give a review of the energy sector and how the recent collapse in energy prices has affected the plan process for bankrupt companies Altamisa and EP Energy. It's Sunday, March 15th. Windstream and Unity continue to take steps toward restructuring with the Windstream debtors, amending the plant support agreement, allowing for increased access to the rights offering. According to the release, the amendment would expand, quote, the scope of participants who may participate in the priority tranche of the rights offering by becoming parties to the amended PSA and supporting the company's comprehensive financial restructuring. Holders of first lien claims that did not previously execute the PSA would be able to elect to become parties to the amended PSA and will then be eligible to participate on a, quote, first come, first served basis in up to $51 million of the priority tranche of the rights offering, allowing for expanded consensus in favor of the PSA. However, only holders of up to $430 million in first lien claims may participate in the amended PSA though that cap may be increased in the sole discretion of the backstop parties in consultation with the company. Later in the week, the debtor said that they had gained support for more than 82% of first lien claims for the plan outlined in the PSA. Separately, Unity Group announced it had recently entered into a definitive agreement to sell 486 out of its 672 U.S. towers for a total cash consideration of approximately $190 million, subject to adjustments. Concurrent with the sale, Unity says it will enter into a strategic offtake tower arrangement with the purchaser, a wireless infrastructure provider. According to the announcement, the definitive agreement includes a go-shop provision, which permitted the company to solicit alternative proposals from third parties. The go-shop period has expired, and the company is evaluating proposals received. Unity has the right to terminate the agreement to enter into a superior proposal subject to certain terms and conditions. There can be no definitive assurance that the go-shop will result in a superior transaction, and Unity does not intend to disclose developments with respect to that process unless and until it determines that such disclosure is appropriate or otherwise required. Malincrat announced this week that it is seeking amendments to its revolver and existing term loans due 2024 and 2025, as well as a new term loan facility maturing in March 2024, according to sources. The credit agreement amendments would allow for the implementation of the proposed global settlement to resolve all opioid-related claims against Malincrat and allow for a new money financing and an exchange offer to address certain near-term bond maturities. According to the cleansing materials, existing term lenders would be allocated $310.3 million of the newly proposed $690 million term loan. The term loan has been contemplated at $800 million according to a lender agreement and a support agreement released on Feb 25th. February 25th agreements also contemplated a partial revolver paydown in respect to revolving lenders who agreed to extend their loans and commitments to March 2024. Commitments from existing lenders are due March 16th at 5 p.m. Malincrot also announced this week that the New York Attorney General had agreed to support a proposed global settlement in principle of all opioid claims against Malincrot. 
The settlement would be consummated through a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing by, quote, the Malincrot entities named as defendants in the New York State Court opioid litigation. And accordingly, the plaintiffs and the Malincrot defendants have asked that Malincrot be severed from the trial. Trial in the New York State Court opioid action, previously set to begin March 20th, has been continued indefinitely in light of the coronavirus concerns. Reorg hosted a webinar on the proposed Malincrot opioid settlement and restructuring and has also provided an Excel model providing illustrative cash flow forecasts for a 10-year period, demonstrating the company's ability under various scenarios to address extraordinary cash outflow items while servicing its to-be-refinanced capital structure. Both of these can be found on reorg.com. St. Louis-based thermal coal miner Foresight Energy filed for Chapter 11 protection last week in the bankruptcy court for the Eastern District of Missouri, following an extended grace period beginning October 2019 after skipping an interest payment on its second lien notes. The debtors disclosed entrance into a restructuring support agreement with holders of over 69% of first lien notes and 82% of second lien notes in two ad hoc groups, along with, quote, certain key contract parties. However, the debtors have not finalized a plan or disclosure statement for the proposed restructuring and have therefore not commenced solicitation. The RSA contemplates equitization of substantially all of the debtors' approximately $1.3 billion pre-petition funded debt, as well as a $175 million dip facility consisting of a $100 million new money multi-draw term loan and a $75 million roll-up of the first and second lien claims of the dip lenders. Certain consenting creditors have committed to provide the full amount of the dip facility, with half the facility open for participation by additional RSA signatories. The RSA also provides for a $225 million L plus 800 exit first lien term loan, backstopped by certain RSA parties. With proceeds to repay the dip facility and leave approximately $50 million of balance sheet cash for future operations. Milestones in the RSA and proposed DIP contemplate a 115-day outside date for confirmation and a 130-day milestone for emergence. On a pre-dilution basis, first lien claims would receive 92.75% of reorganized equity, and second lien claims would receive the remaining 7.25%. The percentages would be subject to dilution from a management incentive plan and four separate fees or premiums payable in reorganized equity under the proposed DIP and exit facility. Holders of allowed general and secured claims would recover from unquantified amounts of cash. The debtors received all requested first-day relief at their first-day hearing, including access to $55 million of the $100 million new money component of their dip financing. Counsel for the debtors argued it was, quote, urgent for the court to enter the proposed interim dip order, as the debtors would otherwise be unable to make their next payroll. Foresight was the second thermal coal producer to file Chapter 11 over a 20-day period after Rumsey, Kentucky-based Hartshorn Holdings filed Chapter 11 on February 20th, seeking to sell its assets on the heels of operational and technological issues unique to the company, as well as, quote, the same regulatory and cost pressures that have led to an industry-wide downturn among coal companies. On the island of Puerto Rico, Monoline Insurers Assured Guarantee AMBAC Assurance and Financial Guarantee Insurance Co., or FGIC, on Tuesday filed a cross-motion and statement in support of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors' motion to amend the case management procedures regarding additional disclosure requirements under Rule 2019 of the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure. 
In its motion, the UCC requests clarification with respect to the holdings of bondholder groups as to bonds issued or guaranteed by the Commonwealth and asks the court to ensure that such groups in the Title III cases disclose their economic interests with respect to the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA. The UCC also asks the court to require that the groups disclose information with respect to the particular series of the Commonwealth and PBA bonds they hold. The Monolines state that they filed their cross-motion to express, quote, strong support for the UCC's motion, adding that the relief they seek is what Rule 2019 already requires, disclosure of bond claims by series held against the PBA and the Commonwealth. According to the Monolines, the relief sought in the committee's motion is, quote, necessitated by the fact that various hedge fund groups have either failed to disclose cross-holdings or simply lumped together all of their holdings into one category, GO bonds or constitutional debt. A new bill filed Monday in the Puerto Rico legislature would establish a wide-ranging public policy covering all debt restructuring efforts and includes an alternate Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. House Bill 2434, the proposed Dignified Retirement Act, would establish a policy that, among other things, would entail zero, quote, zero cuts to pensions and, quote, zero payments to holders of a substantial series of, quote, contested bonds. The filing of the measure comes as the administration of Governor Wando Vasquez maintains that it would not support the amended Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment filed by the Promesa Oversight Board on Feb 28th unless the treatment of public pensions is improved. Also in the Puerto Rico Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Tuesday entered orders related to the disclosure statement scheduling motion and the ongoing revenue bond litigation, both of which were addressed during last week's omnibus hearing. The court also entered its final order in connection with the stay period and mandatory mediation. And last week, Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority Executive Director Omar Marrero, in an exclusive interview with REORG, expressed confidence that changes can be made to the amended Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment that would win the government's support for the deal, indicating that the need to approve legislation provides leverage to the government in continuing talks with the PROMISA Oversight Board. Quote, we have been clear that if they want the legislation, and Judge Swain said clearly that she expects to see legislation before a plan of adjustment is confirmed, well, if you want that, you also have to respond to the public policy requests of the government of Puerto Rico, which we believe are completely reasonable, Marrero told Reorg. Other top stories last week were Alta Mesa Kingfisher sales have not closed by February 28th deadline, now extended. Buyer says financing became impractical points to market conditions related to coronavirus, energy prices. Court denies GA Retail, Tiger Capital request for derivative standing to pursue avoidance actions on behalf of Barney's Estates. Cineworld, owner of Regal Cinemas, prepares to close all or part of operations. Next up is Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, thanks, folks. Good morning, everyone. The week just passed. The less said, the better. Anyways, let's dig right into what this week has in store for us. Monday, March 16th. It's a day after the odds of March, so what better day for a coupon to be due? And there are more than a few. One from California Resources, which last week, of course, cut its capex in response to the crude move. Three from Frontier Communications and two from Whiting Petroleum. And if that's not enough for you, there's also an omnibus hearing in Borden and an exit financing motion hearing in PG&E, and there's earnings from Weatherford and Exila. 
Tuesday, March 17th, it is, of course, St. Patrick's Day, and I'll just note that the first ever parade celebrating the patron saint of Ireland was in Savannah, Georgia, just down the road from my hometown of Statesboro. The Northerners came late to this one again, and happy birthday to one of the finest, Mr. Christopher Farley. Anyways, looks like we have omnibus hearing in Windstream and fourth quarter earnings from Terraform. Wednesday, March 18th, PG&E, the good old CPUC, is back with a planned evidentiary hearing. Honestly, it sounds like something a future Solzhenitsyn may write about. Anyways, there's also a UCC organizational meeting in Art Van Furniture and a status conference for Sanchez Energy. Nor are earnings forgotten with A&R Contura, Urban One, and Tailored Brands. Thursday, March 19th, the CPU evidentiary hearing continues. There's omnibus hearings in Dean Foods and Emerge. And Friday, March 20th, the CPUC is again hearing evidence as the records shake in their Birkenstocks. There's a planned confirmation hearings in American Commercial and a hearing in Art Van Furniture. And that would seem to be it. And if you'll excuse me, I'm going to leave now. I need to get up to a Bears Cajun Specialty Grocery and load up on the crawfish, the boudin, and the andouille. Thank y'all, and back to y'all in New York. And now, here are Mark and Sean to talk energy. Thanks, Raksha. So, obviously, it's been a, a volatile week across um, all uh, all sectors in the, in the market. But one um, that we wanted to focus on here today is uh, the energy sector. Of course, um, the energy is no stranger to uh, to restructuring. So uh, you know, here at Reorg, we know it well and wanted to go um, through some of the nuances. Um, I won't go through all the uh, the details of what's out there. Um, you know, in the market, I'll highlight a few names. But I thought. What's interesting that we could go over um, would be how it's actually affected uh, the bankruptcy uh, markets. We have a couple of names um, that are in Chapter 11, uh, Alta Mesa EP Energy, where um, coronavirus uh, and the fall in energy prices were um, the uh, the number one topic. And, um, you know, in at least one of the cases is actually could change uh, the outcome of the case. So with me is uh, Sean Daly, um, one of our legal analysts uh, here, who's going to talk about um, what uh, what happened in these two cases. Uh, but first, I just wanted to give a rundown of um, some of the names uh, that um, that were affected this week, uh, just highlighting uh, some of the events as well. Um, you know, of course, uh, Monday after uh, news over the weekend between Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, on Monday is when we saw the biggest uh, drop in, in oil prices and um, just to run through some of the, uh, the the biggest decliners, Whiting Petroleum, uh, they have convertible notes that are due uh, April of, um, of this year. Those notes fell um, over 50 points, um, according to Trace. They've since recovered, but um, it sort of represents a theme of what happened, which is um, – Traders that uh, that we spoke to, uh, you know, said really that um, you know in the in the low 30s, not much is viable um, in in oil, and um, people were focused on uh, companies that had um, near term maturities uh, or um, relying on on asset sales. Uh, so waiting is is certainly one of them. Um, it had actually confirmed that they um, were uh, talking to advisors uh, on their fourth quarter call. Um, so we knew that uh, they were in some sort of thoughts about um, liability management, and um, and then the drop of that uh, convertible note, um, a 
along with other uh, notes within its uh, capital structure beyond that convertible note. The company also has um, uh, notes due, uh, 773 million of um, notes due in 2021 as well. Uh, but really across the board is where we uh, we saw a drop. Some of the, the larger ones, Oasis Petroleum, Neighbors Industries, but uh, according to sources, really... Um, you know, it's uh, not those weren't really much outliers. Um, a lot of names dropped um, thirty to forty points that uh, that day, and have really bounced around um, since. Um, other other companies, um, you know, that were covering that, uh, we saw some decent drops and then fiddle on that theme. And Terra Resources, Marcellus focused um, uh, natural gas and uh, NGL uh, producer. The company um, has maturities, um, you know, coming up over the next next um, few years. And it's one of the companies that said that um, they, or at least highlighted that they would rely on asset sales to um, to plug that hole. Um, they had targeted 900 million of, um, of asset sales in 2020. So, you know, clearly people are, are questioning. Uh, so after the market sell-off, what happened? Uh, companies then jumped in, started cutting production, cut dividend, focused on cash flow um, pretty quickly. And uh, the list is, is very long. Uh, a few names I'll highlight. Occidental Petroleum, uh, they slashed their quarterly dividend to 11 cents from 79 cents, reduced CapEx to three and a half billion, a range of three and a half billion to 3.7 billion, um, from 5.2 billion to 5.4 billion. Um, the company, uh, the CEO, quote, um, said, these actions lower our cash flow break even level to the low 30s, WTI, excluding the benefit of our hedges, positioning us to succeed in a low commodity price uh, environment. Another Permian uh, producer, Diamondback Energy, also. Um, cut. Um, then you've had uh, up in the uh, the Bakken, Northern Oil and Gas. Um, they had actually cut um, there or, or they, um, they said they're delaying their decision on commencing a common stock dividend. They were uh, planning to do one um, in, uh, in the coming months. Uh, but because of the, uh, the drop in oil, they said that they're delaying that decision. They also anticipate a CapEx budget of 200 million, which would be down uh, 55% uh, from a year ago. So, you know, those are just a couple of names. The list goes on and on, but um, want to, um, you know, get into the, uh, the restructuring talk, uh, the bankruptcy um, talk, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. And I want to welcome uh, Sean in um, to discuss some of these, excuse me, to discuss some of these names. Um, so thanks, Sean. I uh, appreciate you spending the time. And uh, let's kick it off. Um, Alta Mesa uh, Kingfisher, um, that coronavirus um you know, was really front and center in um, in the cases actually for uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks. So why don't you update us? What's uh, what's going on there? Yeah, of course, um, and happy to to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me on. So just by way of a short background, the Alta Mesa upstream assets and Kingfisher midstream assets were sold to uh, a partnership between Bayou City Energy and Mock Resources in January. And then the sale at the, at the time, um, one of the reasons that bid was chosen over a competing bid from a group of note holders was certainty of closing. Um, BC Mock, the, the buyer entity, had financing lined up uh, through UBS, a, a commitment, and they stated that they intended to close in February. Over the course of February, the closing got pushed uh, to the end of the month, and then 
on March 3rd in court, uh, counsel for the buyer first referenced the, the fact that, oh, because of coronavirus and impacts in the market, um, we're, you know, we're maybe having some, some issues with our commitment. They followed that up. It's, it's been pretty robust uh, back and forth between the debtors, uh, Wells Fargo as administrative agent on loans on either side of the house, and the, the buyer. Um, and so the, the color that's sort of come out is, you know, BC Mock says, oh, we were looking for alternative sources of funding, obviously given the current market environment. Um, these, you know, these things have gotten a little bit tougher. So the, uh, the debtors and uh, Wells Fargo actually asked the court to order specific performance to require BC Mock to, to close on the, on the sale. At a status conference uh, yesterday, March 12th, there was uh, Judge Marvin Isger actually uh, denied that request and um, sort of referred to there's an outside date for the sale of March 15th. So you couldn't really order a specific performance until then, set up two hearings, one later in March and then one in May, uh, the, the one in May to be hearing on whether you could compel a specific performance. Uh, but in the meantime, the debtors have been authorized to fully market their assets again. So yeah, this is, this is a case where, um, and there's some allegations from the, uh, the lenders of the administrative agents that, yeah, BC Mock could have closed this entire time. They told us the delay was just uh, for administrative reasons, not substantive issues with their, their financing. They didn't have a financing out. Um, so that's, that's sort of an interesting one where, yeah, sale agreed to, hasn't closed and you know may not depending on how things shake out. And preceding this and uh, you know one of the reasons why this is um, these delays are, are so important or could have such a big impact in bankruptcy is uh, you know bankruptcies are always um, wedded to specific dates, right uh, where you have to perform. Right. Yeah. Um, and BC Mock actually brought up in a, a filing recently that, hey, you know, when we agreed to this deal, WTI was at 60 or $61. And, you know, I think at the at the time they noted, oh, yeah, by the end of February, it was at 44. And obviously it's since dropped, you know, much further. Um, so, you you know, you understand it from that perspective, right, when you're doing a deal and, and the price is you know, twice as high at the, the specific time you, uh, you sign it up. And what has been... Um Talk to us about some back and forth between the company, uh, between Alta Mesa and, and BCE Mock. I, I know that um, the advisors had questioned uh, some motives um, uh, with, with BCE Mock. Uh, can you just talk a little about that? Yeah, sure. So it was, uh, as I sort of touched on briefly earlier, it was a very contested sale process uh, to the point where, you know, just ahead of the the sale hearing where the, the sale was actually approved, uh, you know, BC Mock was not shy about reminding everyone that they had an outside date um, that they they required the sale to be closed by. So it sort of went from, you know, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, to questions about, well, now why are you pushing it out? You know, the, one of the the administrative agents filing says, oh, you t- again, you told us it was just an administrative issue. It wasn't an actual substantive issue. Um, Judge Isger, even, I mean, a, a week or so ago on the third you know, made it a comment along the lines of, yeah, I don't recall there being a financing out. So it sort of went from the, uh, the sure thing to the, the less sure thing. And on top of that, there was a, a reference in another filing um, immediately before the, the status conference uh, on Thursday um, 
where it, it came up that uh, BC Mock had actually uh, delivered a purchase price adjustment proposal um, this this week to the debtors. So how much you know? Now are you trying to to walk back the purchase price a bit? Um, I think is is going to be another interesting thread to follow here. Great. Uh, so let's jump to EP Energy, um, which is a little bit further along. Uh, they um, we think. Uh, could be on their way to uh, to exit um, from uh, from Chapter Eleven after getting um, their plan confirmed. Uh, but I I really wanted to to focus on the back and forth about uh, plan feasibility. I thought that was um, that was fascinating about how it um, related to energy prices, to coronavirus, um, and mind you, this was all before this week. Right. Yeah. So uh, Judge Isger confirmed EP Energy's proposed plan of reorganization um, last Friday after the close, March 6th, and called it one of the, you know, the hardest fought in his 17 year career on the bench. Uh, a, a huge issue in the case was the feasibility of the debtor's plan. It was contested both by an ad hoc group of one and an eighth and one and a quarter lien note holders as well as uh, a group of um, certain um, trade contractual counterparties. So the uh, the feasibility testimony kicked off on February 27th. Um, debtors and the ad hoc group each had their own experts. And on February 28th, Judge Isger uh, requested the, the parties to brief him. Eventually, there was, there was sort of a long discussion about whether he could should consider the potential impact upon uh, commodity prices of the the coronavirus, which obviously was um, still had not yet had its its full impact, um, and it, it came down to sort of very specifically: should you value again? Comes down to valuation and timing. Do you value this plan where you're looking out over a four or five year uh, horizon? Do you do that based on periods of stability? And, and is it good enough to say that, oh, this is going to be a, a blip, even if not a minor one, just a, just a blip? Or do you respect an efficient market and look at the most recent uh, strip pricing? So it, it ultimately, I mean, it was it was heavily contested. The sort of, the, the experts agreed that, okay, look to NYMEX strip. That's sort of your, your best, if not perfect, indicator of, of value. Um, However, the debtor one of the, one of the issues here the debtors had put out their estimates on December sixth in the disclosure statement. I, I believe the pricing was as of that date. So say the December sixth strip price, and the ad hoc groups expert had used I want to say originally February third. Obviously, prices had had fallen by that point, um, and then more so by the end of the month when when Isger asked them to you know sort of refresh their opinions. Um, so I think it was the the first time I've heard Benjamin Graham brought up in a confirmation hearing when the the debtors expert was asked by Isger, how do you reconcile? There was a some testimony about the fact that when over the last five years, whenever the the futures price for oil has been below fifty dollars, it under predicts future realized spot prices, something like 83% of the time. Sort of, you know, interesting number, but Isger asked, oh, well, how do you reconcile that with um, the idea of market efficiency? And so it's, it was funny that the debtors expert went and quoted uh, Ben Graham on, you know, in the short term, the market's a, um, you know, voting machine, and in the long term, it's a, it's a weighing machine. So it's there was 
even even in talking about market efficiency, there was this discussion of behavioral aspects. Uh, but Judge Isker ultimately came down. He agreed with the ad hoc group's expert that you should look to the most current strip price uh, because it incorporates all available information. And there was there was testimony that oil futures are you know a very liquid, highly efficient market. Um, so I mean that was you know the confirmation order. Well, confirmation was granted on March 6th. So you're, you're talking about even, even the strip price on March 6th, right, was, was materially higher than, than what we're looking at now. And Isger sort of went on beyond all this to say the, the only tough call for him was whether the debtors would be able to refinance their debts as they, they come due in 2023 and 2024. Uh, the debtors were also another hugely contested element of confirmation was whether they could reinstate under the bankruptcy code their one and an eighth lien debt um, and whether they could do so without paying an, an applicable premium, which was not a make whole or, or it was depending on, on which side you were on. Um, but at any rate, in the discussion of feasibility, it, it came out that Isger ultimately found that the debtors more likely than not would be able to refinance. Um, and this sort of goes to the standards that you need to show um, to, to meet this retirement requirement for confirmation that the, the plan is not likely to be followed by liquidation or another reorganization. Um, this doesn't mean you have to guarantee success of the business plan, but just more likely than not that you'll be successful. And then again, you only need to prove that by a preponderance of the evidence, which is sort of a, a lower evidentiary standard. So it's 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 not great when you have to fall back from just saying blanket statement yes this is feasible to then saying you know yeah it passes the minimum the minimum hurdle, but because it was it was very contested and you know you're you're worrying about showing yes this meets the the minimum hurdle um, there was testimony actually from the debtor's banker about all the various levers that the debtors could pull when it came to refinancing. And uh, chiefly, or one of the, probably the, the more interesting testimony, uh, he testified that, yes, oh, under these one and an eighth lien notes under the indenture, we're going to have the ability to do up-tier exchanges or to layer uh, $371 million was a number that kept coming up on a, on a billion dollars of one and an eighth lien debt currently. Yeah, we're, we're going to be able to up-tier or, you know, prime these guys by another $370 million. So you... You just don't necessarily expect to hear that. Um, and I, I think the ad hoc groups council actually made a, a great argument. It wasn't, you know, the, the court ultimately didn't side this way, but um, council, you know, brought up the fact, your honor, they're, they're talking, the debtors are talking about priming us right now. What is that if not an out of court restructuring? You know, what is that if not, you know, contemplating another restructuring when you're here? That's, that's not feasible. Um so yeah, that was. But I guess it, it, it passes that uh, that lower hurdle that you uh, you alluded to. Yeah, it's uh, it's good enough. <laughs> so as we're talking about um, then, well, I guess refinancing feasibility. Um, you know, Sean, I'll I'll let you um, just uh, you know talk about uh, your thoughts about you know what's been happening recently, and and I caution or. Um, you know, I'll say to everybody listening, these are not Reorg's thoughts. These are going to be Sean's thoughts. But, um, you know, curious um, what, um, you know, in, in whether it be an energy case, whether it be a case, you know, period, what have you seen in the past or what do you think, um, you know, happens or, or really what should debtors be thinking about um, when um, when the financing market 
it's um, you know frees up, and uh, there's there's definitely um, some uncertainty happening uh, in in the market. Where's where's some things that debtors uh, should should focus on um, as they're thinking through uh, plans or stakeholders in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start off with the, the former lawyer uh, disclaimer even further that these thoughts may not even be my own. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, you know, if, if you look at EP and it's it's a question again on, you know, obviously the underlying business fundamentals, right? Are you are you looking at a situation now where you think a, a business is viable or, viable or not? But then, assuming you do, um, you know, I, I think the facts in EP where you could reinstate sort of a, a meaningful piece of debt that was covenant light, um, you know, rein, reinstatement in, in short could be a way to prolong the Covlight party if you, if you have the right facts and, and everything in, in place to do it. Um, and sort of if, if you're a debtor, right, thinking about, okay, well, I have the optionality to do all, all these various interesting things under my current debt docs. You know, obviously it doesn't help you if enterprise value erodes to the point where you can't reinstate a given piece of debt. Um, but if you do, if you have a really, I mean, and again, EP is maybe an outlier in that they had one and an eighth lean debt. Um, but reinstatement could be, an, you know, an interesting way to to retain flexibility even after restructuring. I, th- I think one of the more interesting aspects of the um, the latest commodity price drop and, and now, you know, people maybe having to take a hard look at, uh, you know, any restructurings in process or any companies where you think a restructuring may be impending, um, you know, where does how much does valuation change? Uh, I, I think although there's been a, a trend towards a lot more companies filing with really well-baked RSAs in hand and, and agreements on valuation sort of figured out out of court, if there's if there are you know wider disparities now in the outlook um, for oil, maybe that leads to more contested valuation issues going forward. But I think this is a a great opportunity to the extent that you are a more senior constituency in a structure, well, in in a company that, again, you you think is still viable. Um, This is an excellent time to do a new money rights offering. Like we've seen a lot of where you're sort of maybe deriving non-paret economics from other members in a group, or at the very least, you're getting any and every fee you possibly can paid in additional reorganized equity, or if it's um, someone recently a convertible notes offering where, you know, fees paid in additional, um, you know, principal amount of convertible notes, but then would be uh, once converted equal to, you know, just a a wonderfully high percentage of reorganized equity. So from like a, from a, you know, business rationale and, and a showing to the court perspective that yes, your honor, you know, this new money is needed. Um, the fact that things have gotten so much worse only sort of bolsters your ability to go into court and, and say that. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I'd add in terms of whether, you know, it's needed or not, uh, you know, certainly we're hearing from companies before this, um, before this, this week, uh, this past week, we are hearing from companies concerned about uh, spring redetermination uh, when banks um, value um the uh, the assets and determine uh, the borrowing base how much money they're willing to um, to lend against assets um, certainly companies uh, particularly in the natural gas space but probably throughout um, the the commodity stack were uh, concerned about what banks would do so you know we'll see uh, you know certainly there's there's gonna be restructurings uh, coming up in um, in energy and and we'll see uh, where these companies get uh, the financing from um, and as you say if if you got cash uh, that usually uh, that that usually 
does well for you. So, um, Sean, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, this, this has been great. Definitely an interesting spin on, uh, what's been happening, um, in the energy space. Really, um, good, uh, nice to hear from the, uh, the bankruptcy side as well, which, which not everybody has been talking about. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on Mark. And, uh, Connor, uh, sending it back to you. Thanks. Thanks guys. A couple of notes to end this week's podcast. First, we'd like to introduce a new product from Reorg called Reorg on the Record. This is our weekly email digest of intel and analysis from our global team. Stories from this past week's email include updates on Windstream and Unity agreeing to settle Chapter 11 litigation, Live Innova's M&A appeal, and widening losses at Dutch flower grower Doom and Orange. The email also gives recipients advance notice of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. You can sign up now by visiting the Reorg website at www.reorg.com. On a less upbeat note, amid the coronavirus, we'll do our best to keep bringing you the podcast each and every week. However, it's likely it will have to be somewhat abbreviated, or the sound quality just might not be as good. Either way, we appreciate spending our Sundays with each and every one of you, and know that our thoughts and prayers are with you and your families in these uncertain times. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, get all of our podcasts, including from other products, on reorg.com on the media page or on iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelton.